Welcome everyone to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Mariam Thaggart, an English professor at the University of Buffalo, whose upcoming book is titled Writing Jane Crow, African American Women on the American Railroad. This is the first of two podcasts with Mariam. In this episode, we discuss the experiences of black women in the 19th and 20th centuries and the role of the railroad in travel in outlining the boundaries of race relations. Let's listen in. Hi there, and thanks for joining us today, Mariam. This is a podcast we look forward to doing for quite some time now, Uh, so we appreciate you coming on to discuss this with us. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this subject? Okay. Um, Well, thank you so much for inviting me to talk uh, with you on your podcast. Um, My name is Mariam Thaggart, and I'm an associate professor of English at SUNY Buffalo. And I got interested in African-American women in the railroad um, when I was doing some research on Pullman porters. And I came across an application um, from a woman who was applying to be a Pullman company maid. And I had never heard of Pullman company maids before. I've heard a lot about Pullman company porters. And um, I was just curious about this person's experience um, within the Pullman compartment. And that just led me to um, raise other questions like, you know, how did other African-American women experience train travel? You know, why is it that it's so rare to find information about Black female experiences within the train compartment or on the train? Um, And so it just led me to this um, really multifaceted research, um, looking at Black women as both passengers and as workers on the American train. Um, So in my book, I look at um, prominent intellectual African-American women like Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells, um, women who talked about their difficult experiences trying to ride on a train. Um, I look at women who sued when they were forced out of first class, quote unquote, ladies' cars. Um, then I take a look at women who sold food at train stations in the South and um, developed a very healthy uh, business by doing that. Uh, and then my last chapter, I look at Pullman Company maids, uh, trying to get more information about what it was like to be uh, an employee for that very important company. Uh, and then I have a conclusion that takes a look at Polly Murray, who had a public gender expression that was female, a private gender identity that was male. And uh, turns out that Polly Murray um, when traveling by train presented as male. And so I sort of looked at that, um, that experience and how Polly Murray really valued freight car riding. So that's obviously quite a lot of topics to cover in your book. Um, and they all surround, of course, the experience of African-Americans and the railroad. Uh, so why did you choose railroads as the central location for your book? Well, you know, I think the Railroad was one of the most significant forms of transportation in the 19th century. 
um, and by studying how people experience that particular form of technology, we can learn a lot more about you know, how our country perceived uh, people of different races, people of different classes, people of different genders. Um, I actually start the book with an incident that took place in 2015. Um, a group of uh, African-American women in a book club um, took a three-hour trip on the Napa Valley wine train uh, and unfortunately weren't treated very well um, and they ended up suing. Uh, and so I start the book with that particular incident just to highlight how um, this particular experience in 2015 replicates so many of the other experiences of Black women that I encountered when I was studying about their experiences in the 19th century. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And I hadn't even, I haven't heard of this case or anything like that uh, before this conversation. Um, But the Napa Valley Wine Train, you know, we're located in uh, Sacramento, California. That's, I don't know, about an hour and a half from us. Um, Yeah, I should mention too that I think the company is now owned by a different group of people um, from the people who owned it in 2015. Um, And yeah, it was a pretty, when I read about it in the newspapers, it was a pretty traumatic experience for the African-American women of the book club. The book club was named um, Sisters on the Reading Edge. And um, when they got on the Napa Valley wine train, they were seated in the back. Um, employees claimed that the women were talking loudly. Um, they claimed that the women, the black women were abusive. And of course, this wasn't true at all. Um, the women sued and it was settled out of court. Um, but it was just a striking example of how things that took place in the 19th century during Jim Crow segregation can somehow reappear in a different valence, of course, but reappear in the 21st century. Yeah, and, and another thing that's kind of central to your book is the idea that railroad travel and, and travel even more generally um, was very formative to the African-American experience, especially for women um, during this time period. Why was that so? Well, I think in order to answer that question, um, I think it's important to know that there are several different kinds of train cars. So there was the first class train car where um, the seats were usually better upholstered. Um, they were more comfortable. Um, the space was a little bit cleaner. The people in first-class train cars generally acted better. Um, Then you had the second-class cars, um, and some of these cars were generally the Jim Crow cars, or train compartments in which African-Americans usually were forced or required to ride in. These cars were not as nicely decorated. They weren't as clean um, as the first-class cars. And then there was a particular kind of first-class car called the ladies' car. And this was a train compartment that was um, specifically set up for white, middle, or upper-class women who were traveling alone or with a male relative or companion. Um, And, you know, African-Americans, especially during and after Reconstruction, um, developed, um, I guess, more economic um, 
social independence. Um, and one way to sort of test that economic uh, achievement, so to speak, was to be able to ride in a first class car, to be treated like any other passenger who could afford a first class ticket. Um, but of course, that didn't happen. Um, there are numerous accounts of um, prominent African American men and women purchasing first class tickets and then being forced to ride in a substandard second class car. Um, so being able to ride first class without being assaulted, I think, was um, a right that unfortunately a number of African Americans um, were denied in the 19th century. Um, and I think specifically for African American women, when they tried to ride in the first class ladies cars, um, it was even more problematic because you know, when we think about the term ladies, you know, for a long period of time, African American women were not called by that particular term. Um, to ride in a ladies car, I think for African American women would signify that in fact, they would be as respected as, and treated as well as any other white female traveling on the train. Um, but we know of course that there were a number of black women who purchased their first class tickets to ride in a first class car or a ladies car and unfortunately were forced off sometimes by the conductor, sometimes by other passengers. Um, and so being able to test how they would be treated within the train compartment, I think sort of signified a larger um, way of measuring um, the country's quote unquote progress. Yeah, and I think that brings up an interesting point. Um, one of our newest exhibits at the Railroad Museum um, is, is called Crossing Lines, Women in the American Railroad. And it talks all about uh, women in a variety of contexts and different backgrounds um, and how they made their mark on the railroad um, throughout its history. And one of the things that came up during that research um, was that this idea of womanhood um, was uh, racialized to be white and some of the, you know, quote unquote protections that prevented women um, from things like laying tracks. Um, it didn't apply to all women. Um, it only applied to the white woman. Um, and you know, that's why you saw enslaved individuals, male and female, in the South um, laying tracks when white women wouldn't be allowed to do something like that during that time. Um, and I think we're kind of touching on a similar thing here where uh, white women are afforded that, you know, quote unquote protection um, in those ladies' cars. Um, but African American women, it sounds like, were excluded from that, again, quote unquote protection. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about how those gender roles were racialized? Yeah, so um, this concept of gender deference, so that, you know, if you were a white traveling woman, um, you were afforded certain courtesies that were not given to African-American traveling women. Um, and actually one of the women that I studied, Anna Julia Cooper, has a whole name for this. She calls it national courtesy. Um, and she states that there's no true test of national courtesy without travel. So that a black woman traveling um, can sort of be that test to measure you know, how well 
um, do the people in a particular town treat African Americans in general? Yeah, so that sounds like it sort of gets into um, another question that we have for you. Um, so you mentioned that you're a uh, professor of English, and um, as people might expect, a lot of what your book focuses on is African-American literature during this time period, which refers to railroads quite a bit. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, literature pieces and maybe why they focus so much on the railroad? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, this was something else that I noticed um, very early on in my research. I'm I'm actually a literary scholar, I'm not a historian, um, and reading African-American literature, I came across so many scenes that took place in train cars. And I think one of the reasons is sort of like what I uh, mentioned earlier, that um, African-Americans wanted to be treated just like any other group of people. Um, if they could afford a first-class ticket, they wanted to be able to ride in that particular space. Um, unfortunately, that, that they would be forced off um, at, at different, uh, different times and locations. Um, one of my favorite novels has a really good scene uh, that takes place within a train car. It's Charles Chestnut's The Mower of Tradition, uh, published in 1901. And um, in this particular scene, a um, middle-class Black doctor is riding from the north to the south. And as he gets further south, he is forced to ride in a Jim Crow car. And the whole passage has him thinking about the injustices of um, someone in his position of um, some economic prominence being forced to ride in this really dirty um, train car with uh, lower class African-Americans. And it's a really striking scene because we sort of see the elitism of this black male figure, um, even while Chestnut is highlighting the really uh, injustice of being forced to ride in a space that uh, he didn't pay for. Um, and the whole scene is sort of this discussion about Plessy versus Ferguson, um, really important Supreme Court case settled in 1896 that really sanctioned um, separate but equal um, accommodations. All right. Thank you, Mariam, for that answer. And we're going to take just a short break from the interview to discuss the sponsor for today's podcast. So we're sponsored by the California State Park Adventure Pass program. And that's a program designed to connect fourth graders with the California State Park system. It gets the fourth grader and their families into 19 state parks for free. For more information on which parks are participating, as well as how to sign up, go to reservecalifornia.com. Now back to the interview. During your research, what omissions from scholarship did you uncover? Um, well, there are two really important books that I think have shaped um, the cultural study of the railroad. Um, one is Leo Marx's um, The Machine in the Garden. The other one is Wolfgang Scheivelbusch, The Railway Journey. Um, and these are two really important classic texts, uh, scholarly texts on 
the significance of the railroad in the U.S. Scheibel Bush looks at the U.S. and uh, Europe. Um, and I just noted while reading those two books that there weren't a lot of discussions about um, the traveler of color. You know, how did the traveler of color experience this really significant form of transportation? Um, and um, in my book, I highlight one particular section of Wolfgang Scheibelbusch's book, The, the Railway Journey, um, where he talks about how uh, initially, when the train started in Europe, some of the passengers were upset because they felt like parcels. They felt like they were just baggage thrown onto the train car. And I contrast that to the experiences of enslaved individuals in the United States. For example, Henry Box Brown, who, in fact, literally uh, became a package so that he could acquired his freedom. So he had someone build a box. Um, he placed himself in the box and it was boarded up. And then the box was transported from, um, I believe it was Virginia, um, up to Philadelphia. Uh, when the box landed in Philadelphia, it was open and he jumped out. Uh, and that's how he acquired his freedom. Uh, and so I just make that very, uh, striking contrast between this feeling that you're not being treated well on a European train car and the fact that for most African-Americans, um, especially in the mid to late 19th century, they were forced to um, quite literally place themselves in predicaments in which, yes, in fact, they were like baggage. Wow, I think that's a really powerful dichotomy that um, you touch on. Um, and it, it sort of brings up another topic that you, your book speaks about, um, and that's the idea of railroad compartments shaping um, the way Americans understand identities surrounding citizenship. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, so in one of my chapters, I take a look at um, the Civil Rights Act of 1875. Um, this was an important um, legal accomplishment that African-Americans uh, received, if, if you want to use that word, um, in 1875. It was sort of the uh, product of Charles Sumner. He was a Massachusetts sem uh, senator, um, a radical Republican. Um, and the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was really important because um, it prohibited discrimination in certain public accommodations. And um, those people who sued when they were forced off of first-class train cars are not given uh, adequate um, provisions in certain public establishments, they relied upon the Civil Rights Act of 1875. Um, I look at um, a Supreme Court case um, that effectively nullified the power of that Civil Rights Act. Um, there was a woman named Sally Robinson um, who wanted to ride in the first class train car. Uh, she was forced off because um, the conductor thought she was a black woman riding with a white man and 
the conductor had all kind of uh, ideas, I guess, about what happens when a uh, black woman is riding with a white man. Um, basically, he thought that she was a prostitute and forced her to leave the first class car. Um, her case became part of what was known as the civil rights cases of 1883. Um, and this was a Supreme Court case that was decided in 1883, um, in which the Supreme Court basically nullified the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And um, that particular decision was really significant because it rendered um, ineffective the Civil Rights Act of 1875. It, it, the African-Americans no longer had access to that particular legislation to argue for um, their right to be in public spaces. Um, so I think that particular Supreme Court decision indicated how um, even after all of these post-Civil War constitutional amendments, um, African-Americans would still be denied the basic rights and privileges that are usually granted to American citizens. And on that note, your work says that uh, these train compartments can be seen as a microcosm um, of American society. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, I think when you look at most train cars, um, especially in the 19th century, you encountered a variety of people. Um, you know, for the price of a ticket, you would meet someone, you know, who you may not have, uh, you, you might meet people of different classes, people of different colors. Um, you know, if you could afford that first class ticket, you were riding in a very nice location. But if you're riding a second class, you had a motley group of people. You know, you might have immigrants um, who are traveling to the West. Um, you might have people trying to uh, make a sort of short distance on, on the railroad line. So I think, um, you know, depending on whether you were in first class or second class, you had the opportunity to meet such a wide range of people. Um, and then I think, too, um, depending upon the other passengers in the train car, um, that would impact how some African-American passengers would be treated. Um, and as I mentioned before, I think the way some Black people were treated in the train cars in different locations tended to reflect how um, some communities perceived African-Americans. Thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In our next podcast, we'll release the second half of this interview, which focuses on several individuals that challenge those gender and racial boundaries you just heard about. This podcast was produced by Jason Rankins, Amanda DeFazio, and Jacob Jennerjohn. For more information about women in the American Railroad, see the link to our digital exhibit titled Crossing Lines, Women in the American Railroad, and a pre-order link to Mariam's new book, titled Writing Jane Crow, African-American Women on the American Railroad, in the description below. <laughs>